Well, if you're uh, new to this conversation, we have been taking a look at the New Testament letter of James, a letter written to uh, Jewish Christians that because of some uh, uh, persecution had moved beyond Jerusalem and, and were out in these other communities. And, and so he, he writes to them to encourage them in their faith. But we've already mentioned that the letter of James uh, uh, at times comes across more as an instruction manual. And one of the things I've experienced from instruction manuals is fatigue, instruction manual fatigue. Here you've gone out and you've purchased something that you're super excited about, and then they give you this big old instruction manual that you're supposed to use to, to learn, learn how to use the item or to enjoy the item you have. And it could be that as we work our way through James that we might be finding ourselves experiencing instruction manual fatigue. So I thought maybe here at the beginning we could take another look at the real gift, the, 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 the prize, the, 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 the best thing about being a Christian, that, that the instruction manual is important because it, it helps us to know what, what it looks like to live in, with this wonderful gift and, and to enjoy it to the fullest, but the gift itself is marvelous. It's the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. It's Romans 5.8, a, a verse we've We've uh, mentioned many times over, for God demonstrated His own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Did you hear it? For God demonstrated His own love for you and for me in this, that while we were still in opposition to God, while we were still committing those things that go against God's intentions, his teaching, his character, his holiness, and not just those sins of commission, but the sins of omission, all the things. Because one might say, well, I wasn't really all that bad. I, I didn't do some of the horrible things that other people did. But it's also those sins of omission. If, if we were not prioritizing God and our money, and we weren't reaching out with love to our neighbors, that even in active rebellion against God, God demonstrated His own love for us in this, that He sent His Son in this world, that Christ died for us. And when that happens, when Christ died for us, when He was raised from the dead, He moved us from death to life. We had the charge of being guilty, and He moved us to the declaration of forgiven. We were lost but Jesus made sure we were found. We were estranged, but because of Christ, the gift, the gospel, the good news, the new life we have, we went from being estranged to being reconciled. And if you've ever been estranged from someone, you know the feeling. You know the feelings of, of fear or anxiety, of, of anger, of, of, of separateness. And the gospel is that we are no longer estranged from God, but that through Jesus Christ, we are reconciled with God. We were apart from God, but because of the gift of Jesus Christ in His death and resurrection on the cross, 
we now abide with him. His spirit abides in us. This is the gospel. I've mentioned a a favorite hymn of mine, um, uh, Charles Wesley's hymn, And Can It Be? That final stanza, he puts it so well. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. And so James writes his instruction manual that we might then know how to live in light of the good news. That we might know how to to conduct ourselves in response to what God has given us freely through Christ's sacrifice. Now, you might already recall that James, in his letter, has already addressed issues of wealth and and, uh, pride and humility. And and we've already noticed how James will introduce something and and then he'll pick up another topic and, and then he'll return to what he's already introduced. And that there's really just about three different main topics that are in play in the letter. Well, we come back to the issue of wealth and boasting and humility and pride this morning. Our passage is James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. If you have your Bible with you, I encourage you to open it. James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. Hear the word of God. Come now, you who say... Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, You boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him or her, it is a sin. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word and may God add his blessing to our time together. Well, you may have noticed it as we entered into that passage this passage happens to be a come now passage. Whenever there's a come now passage, either our ears perk up or maybe they they go straight back down. Come now, you who say, we're going to be taken to task in this text. We find out that he's talking to people of means without spending time going through all the various class structures of Rome at the time, we can identify that this is a smaller group of Christians. And we know it's Christians because of the language that James uses in here and how he refers them to the Lord. And so the smaller group of Christians that had means and uh, were involved in business, uh, and he has things to say to this group. Now, in his context, it was a smaller group, but we know in our day and age in our current culture that that business class tends to be a larger group even in our congregation and we know that we're not a monolithic group in terms of income levels that we have variations as well but 
but there will be a higher percentage of people in our experience that have the kind of means that James is addressing. So for us, our ears should perk up. Come now, you who say. And here's what he says to them. He first calls out what they've been doing. In verse 13, he says, um, come now you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Our translation does not pick up what is found in the original text. Um, we, uh, we find in the original text that the four verbs are all in the future tense. And so there's this uh, repetition in terms of one's expectation. It would read more like this. Today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town, and we will spend a year there, and we will trade, and we will make a profit. James calls out their, um, their sense of wealth, giving way to some sense of personal autonomy, some sense of, of life autonomy. My wealth gives me autonomy, the, the ability to be in charge of things, to, to dictate how life goes, wealth moving into autonomy. I will, I will, I will. And so then we come to verse 14, and, and here's James' reply to that. He says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. That reminder of just because we're wealthy, that there's a sovereign God. And if we pull back our perspective, instead of just looking in, at ourselves from a relative standpoint and our buying power, if we step back that there's this great amazing God that, that rules over all things and, and on a larger time scale we know that we are small in those words that we heard about Jesus, about God this morning as we worship together in God's power and His greatness and, and in comparison we get a better perspective of who we are. James wants them to know of this finiteness in comparison to who God is. And then he says in verse 15, he says, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. By the way, Paul picks up on this. In a number of places we find Paul mentioning that when uh, he's writing to various churches that he looks forward to coming and seeing them and he puts the words, if the Lord wills. Now, we have to be careful because maybe we might be the kind of people that are wired to say, well, if I just say that line, then I'm good. But James is not declaring these as magical words, that if you say these words, and then everything will just work out, right? It's like when we, um, when we pray as people who come to God in and through Jesus Christ, the, the way, the truth, and the life, the way to God. When we pray, we'll often end our prayer with, in Christ's name, amen. Well, we don't include that because they're the magical words that make the prayer actually more effective. It's simply a declaration of that I come to God in and through Jesus Christ and that there's no other way to come to God. And I, I, I come 
through Christ to God, and my prayers are through Christ, and in His name, His heart, His understanding, His wisdom are to, is to guide my prayers. No magic in the words. It's a declaration of our disposition. And so it's more like the Lord's Prayer, that when we say, um, uh, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. James is calling people, uh, calling these, these uh, uh, business class people to, uh, to be mindful of this, that their, that their intentions and their plans would be focused on, if the Lord wills, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so then we finally come to the real issue, though, in verse 16. The real issue comes out. Verse 16 reads this way. It says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So if the issue is not about magical words, it's not even about planning. That's not the concern that people would plan. It's not about business or traveling or making a profit. Those aren't the issues that James is addressing. But the issue is arrogance. Now, we've seen this in James before, right? He's mentioned something about the words we use and and that the words we use really reveal the heart we have. So James says, listen, you're making these statements. I will go and do this. I will go and do this. And it's revealing your heart of arrogance, wealth, providing for some personal autonomy, some life autonomy, And it reveals this arrogance of heart. You know, in the the NIV's translation of this verse, they um, say, uh, you you boast and brag. But in in the text, uh, in in Scripture in general, boasting is not necessarily a bad thing. We can boast in Christ. We we can take um, uh, pride in what God has done in our life. So when James writes it, he uses the word for boast, and then he follows it up by, with a preposition. So you boast in something. And the word he uses, this noun for arrogance, he puts it in the plural. So really it should be read, we boast in our arrogances. You know, one of the important things we do when we study scriptures, we always want to study it and understand it in its original context so that we know what it says in its original context. What was James wanting his original audience to understand from his words? And so we've just done that. We've worked through the various verses, seeing them in their context, knowing the historical stuff, knowing the grammatical stuff. But then we take that message, what James was teaching, and we take the message and we apply it to our world today. So we don't just look at the text and, and look and see how we feel about it from our perspective. We first study it in its context, and then we take its teaching and apply it to our situation. So since James identifies that the core issue is this arrogance inside of them, that is giving way then to this set of patterns of saying, well, I'm going to go do this, and then I'm going to go do this, and I'm going to do this because I have wealth, and that gives me power, and I have autonomy over my life. So let's talk a little bit about arrogance. 
You could look up the definition just as easily as I could, that an exaggerated sense of one's own importance or abilities, an exaggerated sense of one's own importance or abilities. I've um, found that uh, as the years go by, I've, I've become a, a, a bit of a, a watcher of, uh, of golf on TV. Now, I, I don't do it on Thursdays or Fridays or Saturdays. It's always Sundays right after lunch before my, um, uh, my pastoral nap, all right? There seems to be this transition. But I found as I watched these golf uh, tournaments that um, when somebody finishes a round and the sportscaster comes and interviews them, they ask them these questions, you know, just, um, hey, take us through uh, um, uh, the 15th hole. And the, the golfer will say something like, well, I really hit a fantastic approach shot. Or, or you know, my, my putting was really on today. I putted really, really well. And at first when I heard this, I was a little, well, wow, that's a, that's a little full of yourself. And, but then I began to think about that, no, that individual's putter really was working well. And they really did putt well all day. It was a statement of fact. It was not a, a, a braggadocious thing. It was not arrogance. It was just they really did hit a good approach shot. So what James, this helps us because what James is addressing is that it, it's, it's not uh, confidence that he's coming up against. It's not healthy self-esteem, but it crosses over into that arrogance. And when we begin to exaggerate something, there was a study that uh, came out of the University of Missouri. A team of psychologists put together this analytical tool of understanding arrogance. And what they did is they identified three kinds of arrogance that we can look for in our lives. One of them they called individual arrogance. An individual arrogance is when we have an inflated opinion of our abilities, our traits, our accomplishments, our importance, our power. We have an uh, inflated opinion when compared to the truth. When compared to the truth. And so we can say stuff like, well, I deserve this. Or it's my right I earned this money. This is my life. We have this exaggerated opinion, this inflated opinion. James goes, look under the whole perspective of God. That we're just this finite little thing. And yet we can say, well, I deserve it. In, in the big scheme of things, I deserve it because I, I worked for it. Individual arrogance. The next type, kind of arrogance that the team uh, identified was comparative ignorance. Comparative ignorance. And the way that the team defined this was that it's an inflated ranking, an inflated ranking of one's own abilities, power, uh, uh, value, um, when compared to other people. So we begin to rank ourselves. Well, of course, I should be able to do this. I, I, I've worked harder than all, all the rest of the people did. You know, they could do it themselves, but, but since they didn't, well, I really deserve this more than they do. I have more value because of my income, and well, I can really afford this, and I can go about doing these things, and, and we justify that, 
that in comparison to others, well, we're just more important. The third one that they identified was antagonistic arrogance. And this involves the denigration of others based on assumptions of superiority. The denigration of others. It's amazing how in our wealth, when it reveals the arrogance of heart, that we can say stuff like, you know, well, it's their fault that they don't have the freedoms I do. And then we get to that point, well, you know what? That other person is of lesser value. They're less deserving than I am of the things I have. And so we say stuff like, they're less valuable because they're poorer. Well, we don't say it like that because that would be rude. But we live like that. We can vote with the idea of our own tax situation in mind. We can vote for a candidate based on what they'll do for me because our wealth position becomes important to us. Or we can say stuff like, uh, that person's less valuable than me because they're not white. Or they're not American. And so I deserve what I have because of where I was born. And, and we have this perspective of, well, you know what? That country needs to solve their own issues. Again, that arrogance of heart gets revealed. Boasting in our arrogances, James says, that all such boasting is evil. Now, we may have defensive response. How can I be arrogant? James, you say, you say that there's arrogance, but, you, but don't you know I'm nice? I, I'm a nice person. How can I be arrogant? Or we may say, but I've earned it and it's my right, so... so why would it be arrogance if I'm just living out what I've accomplished? Or maybe we might say, but everyone else is doing this. Maybe we end up asking, what's the big deal anyways? So what if I have a few plans? Doesn't God want me to be happy? Here's the big deal. There's a big difference between following my desires and following Christ, following my desires, and following Christ. The gospel, the gospel says that the best thing, the best thing in the world, the thing that, that, that is connected to eternity, the, the thing that restores us, that puts us in relationship with God, is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ, and that it's so much better than following my desires. That's the big deal. There's this uh, quote by a gentleman, a gentleman by the name of Arthur Simon. Arthur Simon uh, was the founder of uh, Bread for the World, which is a lobbying group that uh, seeks to make a difference in um, uh, food scarcity around the, the, the globe. And he makes this uh, statement in a book he wrote called How Much is Enough? Hungering for God in an Affluent World. Hungering for God in an Affluent World. Here's what he says. The problem is not that we've tried faith and found it wanting. The problem is not that we've tried faith and found it wanting. 
but that we've tried mammon, wealth, and found it addictive. And as a result, find following Christ inconvenient. When we get to verse 17, James throws in this line. In fact, it can almost feel like, James, what are you doing? And it appears as though he's quoting from something. He says it this way. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is a sin. Essentially he's saying, listen, I've pointed this out to you. Now if, you, if we fail to, to submit ourselves to God's sovereignty, uh, even in the midst of our wealth, to not hold on to autonomy, but to, but to know that, that we submit to the living God, that he calls it out as sin. All right, so what do we do? Let us finish up with this. What, what are you going to do? Here's the first thing. And it's, you know this. We know this. Seek first the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus said. Here's the thing to do. Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek it first. So if, if you happen to be a, 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 a teen with means, like you know, you know that uh, uh, college is coming or, or that, you know, that you've got opportunities to play on all these different kinds of sport teams or you have all these different things you never really wanted for much, you see your parents' income at a certain spot and you just go, I'm going to have that or more and this is the kind of lifestyle that I'm used to. If you're teens with means, what if you chose? I'm going to seek first the kingdom of heaven. If you're 20s or 30s, what if, you know, as you're paying off uh, college debt and you're beginning to establish a, a lifestyle and a career, what if you said, I'm going to seek first the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to seek first the kingdom of heaven. What if you're 30s and 40s, whether you're single or married or kids or no kids, and, and you're in the midst of career and, and you're making choices and you're putting out plans, what if you said, I'm going to seek first the kingdom of heaven. If you're in your 50s or 60s, and you're at that point of, of income that they talk about in terms of your, these are your earning years. Or um, uh, if that happens to be your situation, what if you would be able to say, I'm going to seek first the kingdom of heaven. What if you're 70s or 80s or, or, or above? Or what, what if you said, seek first the kingdom of heaven? The second thing would be this. Plan. Go ahead and make plans. But hold our plans loosely. I've always, uh, you know, liked that little line where they go, plan your work and work your plan. But don't serve your plan. Serve Jesus Christ. Work, plan your work, work your plan, but don't serve your plan. Serve Jesus Christ. So we go ahead and make plans, but we hold them loosely. God, is there something else you would have me do? I remain open for your calling on my life. And my plans are always submitted to you. The third thing would be this. Actively depend on God. Actively depend on God. This could happen a hundred times every single day. God, I'm, I'm depending upon you for the conversation I'm going to have here. It's not my agenda that matters, it's your agenda. God, I, I, I depend upon you on my calendar today. I, I have plans, but, but I depend upon your leading in my life to show me how to live and conduct myself, to steward my time and steward my resources. 
God, I have plans for my retirement, but God, I'm going to depend on you. And those plans that the culture says that I need to live a certain way to, to live a certain way, but I'm going to depend on you and your promises because I follow Jesus Christ. You know, it was Jesus who explained the gospel this way. This comes to us from uh, Matthew chapter 11, again, another passage we've looked at many times. Here's how he explained the gospel. He said, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Money, wealth, does not buy our way out of yoke-bearing. The best thing in the, in the Bible for us is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is available. And the gospel of Jesus Christ, this free gift of a reconnect with God, of this connection with God, this reconciliation, it comes with a yoke and that yoke is far better than anything we think we could claim in this world. There's an arrogance of thinking we can suspend the requirement of that yoke bearing. In fact, Jesus sets it up that the yoke he offers is joy. It's joy. It's the source of joy. It's, it, it's that being with him. It's, it's uniting with him. And to bear that yoke is our privilege. This is the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are a God who um, really wants us to thrive in this world. That you, you have this passion that we would make full use of your gospel and enjoy all of it in our lives. And you know the degree to which each one of us has attempted to settle for less, to believe what our bank accounts say about us, to claim autonomy apart from you. God, would you work in our hearts and our minds and that you, would you work that transformation that we would live with open hands before you, that all of our plans, that we would hold them before you and say, if the Lord wills, if the Lord wills, thank you for the gift of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.